0: The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to open it to Romans chapter 3. That's where we're going to be spending most of our time uh, together today. So over the past 20 plus years or so, one of the musicians that's had one of the biggest influences on my life um, is a guy by the name of David Bazan. I've talked about him a little bit um, in the past a few times. Um, he was uh, formerly in this band called Pedro the Lion. Um, they started out, he started out as a Christian, he was a believer. He's, um, he's no longer a follower of Christ. Um, but 20 years ago, when I was really listening to his music, I found it really influential in the way that he talked about the realities of life. Um, he really talked a lot about the realities of the gospel. And as we've talked over the past couple weeks, we know the gospel, as much as the gospel is Jesus has come to save us, um, the gospel is also the fact that we are sinners. And one of the things that I really have appreciated about what David Bazan did and and the way he put words together was he talked about the realities of the gospel, the truthfulness of the sinfulness of mankind, the brutal realities of our sinfulness, and then also the brutal realities and the good news of Jesus Christ. And he would often do that through metaphor and analogy. So you really had to read deeply into what he was singing about, what he was talking about, um, to see kind of those threads. And it's kind of like creation that we talked about a few weeks ago in Romans chapter 1. How what can be made known about God is, is, um, is evident through his creation. And one of the things that, that David Bazan did, when I, I've seen him in concert a few times, and one of the things that he always did that I appreciated the most is he would, he would sing a series of songs, again, where there were these little threads of the gospel, and he would just stop and he would say, are there any questions at this point? And that was always my favorite part of a David Bazan, Pedro the Lion show, because you never quite knew what someone was going to ask him. Um, usually it was about something that he had just sang about, a, a point of the gospel and, and how did he make that connection. And I just love that um, so much. I love the fact that he was open in, in allowing people to ask him questions. And we're at this point in the book of Romans where, where Paul has written Chapters 1 and 2, and they've really been a pretty brutal takedown of the Gentiles, the Gentile believers, their sin. And then in chapter 2 is a pretty brutal breakdown of the Jewish believers. And what he does is he pauses... And he gives them time now to to kind of ask the questions that they would have had on their mind. And these questions that we're going to talk about today aren't anything new for Paul. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, you would see as he goes to all of these different places, he visits all of these different towns, he's constantly confronted by Jewish believers who are asking the kinds of questions that we're going to read about today. But first, let's talk about this. Let's talk about what Paul said to the Gentile Christians. Again, this is uh, from chapter 1. He said forever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, everlasting, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So again, Paul is looking at the believers in Rome. And here he's specifically addressing the Gentile believers. He's saying that God has communicated himself in a way that makes it clear that there is a God. And like the example that I've used every time we've talked about this verse, we go outside, we look at the monument, and we recognize that, that someone put that there. That that just didn't happen. And the other thing I always talk about whenever I talk about this text is the hiking trip I took to North Carolina with students um, when I was in student ministry. We were in the middle of nowhere on this single track trail walking up this hill, and there's this five-foot-long steel railroad line in the middle of nowhere. And you know what I didn't think? I didn't think, well, with enough time and pressure... That steel is going to form itself into a railroad line. No, my question was, somebody put that there. I wonder why that's there. How did that piece of steel get there? See, this this prompted this question in my mind. Well, then in chapter 2, Paul turns his attention to the Jewish believers, and his diagnosis of them is not much better. He says, begins in this way. You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad. And you have no excuse. When you say they're wicked and should be punished, you're condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. This is a little later in Romans 2. The Jewish ceremony of circumcision only has value if you obey God's law. But if you don't obey God's law, you're no better than an uncircumcised Gentile. And if the Gentiles obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? "'In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law "'will condemn you Jews who are circumcised "'and possess God's law, but don't obey it. "'For you are not a true Jew "'just because you were born of Jewish parents "'or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. "'No, a true Jew is one one whose heart is right with God. "'And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law, "'rather it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit.' And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. So we don't really understand how offensive this text would be to the Jewish people. We have, no, we have no framework, we have no concept for this. And they, I think, would have been stunned to hear this. I imagine the person who's, who's reading this letter to the church, because again, they, they didn't have their own copy, they didn't have "you" U-version, they had one person reading this letter. I imagine this person, as, as, as they are reading this, like kind of having a hard time reading and getting through this commentary, reading through this letter. They would have been absolutely stunned to hear that Gentiles who were uncircumcised would be sitting in judgment over them. This would have completely gone against everything they believed. Their culture, their history. You wouldn't have had a framework for it. And then the Jews then obviously would have been wondering what was going on here. They would be wondering, what happened, what happened to my church? They would be wondering, what happened to my faith? What happened to my religion? What happened to all of the rites and rituals that, that my people have been following for thousands of years? What am I supposed to do with these things? And again, these questions would have been nothing new for Paul because he would have been hearing them for decades. And ultimately, these are questions of their identity, questions of their purpose. If Jesus eliminates all of these lines that separate people, Jews from Gentiles, if he eliminates these lines and erases them, well, this is Romans 3 verse 1. Then what is the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any value in the ceremony of circumcision? Yes, there are great benefits. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. True, some of them were unfaithful, but just because they were unfaithful, does that mean God will be unfaithful? Of course not. Even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. As the scriptures say about him, you will be proved right in what you say, and you will win your case in court. But, some might say, our sinfulness serves a good purpose, for it helps people see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair, then, for him to punish us? This is merely a human point of view. Of course not. If God were not entirely fair, how would he be qualified to judge the world? But, someone might still argue, how can God condemn me as a sinner if my dishonesty highlights his truthfulness and brings him more glory? And some people even slander us by claiming that we say the more we sin, the better it is. Those who say such things deserve to be condemned. So here's the basic question that the that Paul is addressing. That, that's on the minds of the Jewish people as they're hearing this letter read over them. If anyone can be included in the salvation of God, is there any advantage or benefit to being a Jew? Is there any advantage or benefit to my identity? If anyone can be saved, why does, why does being Jewish matter? Does my circumcision matter? If we were if we were hearing this letter today, as as Christians with the with the tradition that we have here at Westway Christian Church of baptism by immersion, I think we might have, hear a question like this: If anyone can be saved, is there any advantage to being a Christian? Does my baptism matter? If those questions make us a little bit uncomfortable, I think we might be getting a hint of how the Jews might have felt. I'm not saying our baptism doesn't matter. I'm trying to help us understand the offensiveness of what's taking place in this letter and what Paul is trying to do. And here's Paul's answer. He says, yes, you have the Torah, you have the law, you have the entire revelation of God. So if there is a benefit to being a Jew, it's because you have the law. You have more of an understanding of what it means to follow God. Remember what the larger story is in the book of Romans. The Gentiles had creation to reveal to them the realities of God. And the Jews were the next level. They had the law to reveal more of God. See, the law reveals God's standards and God's expectations. The Gentiles didn't have that. We look out, we see the monument, we see the monument, and we want to worship God, right? That's all we can do from that. We don't have anything that takes us further that explains more. And that's exactly what the law does. So they knew more. They had more of a reason to be a follower of God. And what did they do with that? How did the Jewish people respond to God's law? Well, as we read last week, they completely blew it. They knew what God expected of them, and they chose something else. And then in the form of more questions are more accusations. Well, why would, good ju- why would God judge us when our sinfulness reveals his mercy? We're going we're gonna to read a similar question to this in a few weeks. How can God judge me when my sin reveals his truthfulness and makes him seem more glorious, right? Because if I continue to sin, and this is, this is the question that Paul's soon going to ask, should we continue to sin so that, may, that grace may abound? Like if my sin reveals my need for God, then I should just keep sinning because God can be more and more glorious. And some say the more we sin, the more glory God receives, then Paul tells them clearly that these are sinful questions and sinful statements. See this isn't about God being more glorified as we continue to sin. So this is verse 9. Well then, should we continue that we Jews are better than the others? So now there's the pride, right? Now what Paul is going to do is he's going to address the pride that the Jews are having. Because again, they have the law. They think they're going to be better people. And that's the same thing that was taking place in chapter 2. No, not at all. For we've already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away, all have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul, like a stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. Obviously, the law applies to those whom it was given. For its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. So again, the Jews have the law. The Jews know exactly what God expects of them. He knows what the standards are. And how do the Jews respond? They reject him. And any advantage that they had in having the law is erased by their own sinfulness. Any advantage. They had the law, but they failed to keep it. They squandered their advantage and wasted it by their own disobedience. They knew exactly what God called them to. That, that they were going to be a people who were going to be set apart. A city shining on a hill. A light for all of the nations to see and be an example of if they kept the law, their rightful place, but they didn't. Last week, I told you that Paul really has three audiences in mind as he's reading this, as he's writing this letter. He has the church, which is, which is everyone in Rome. He has the Jewish people, and he has the Gentile people. And in these verses, Paul seems to be speaking to everyone. When he talks about No one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeing God. He seems to be talking to everyone, and in a way he is. But what Paul is doing is he's using the the Jewish scriptures to do it. These were texts that the Jews would have been incredibly familiar with. So what God, through Paul, is doing is he's talking to the Jews. These are Psalms with some Isaiah thrown in. He's talking about how everyone, not just the Gentiles, but the Jews are under the power of sin. What he's doing is what he did back again in Romans chapter 1. is He's offering a pretty brutal diagnosis of humanity. He's telling them that whether, they, whether you have the law or not, your response to God as a person is going to be rejection and rebellion. Whether you know what you're supposed to do or not, rejection and rebellion. When you have the law, rejection and rebellion. So we have this, we have this disease and it's called sin. And this disease manifests itself in lots of different ways. It presents in lots of different ways. And if you want to know what those are, just go back and read through Romans chapter 1. And see all of the different ways that our disease reveals itself. What Paul's trying to say here, using these texts from the book of Psalms, is in almost every action, in almost every word, and almost every thought, our bent is towards sin. And again, this is a pretty bad diagnosis. Diagnosis. And the question that we then have to wrestle with, well, if creation doesn't save us and the law can't save us, like, what do we do? What's what's the hope? Where do we go? What can we do? Paul writes this. This is verse 21. But now... God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short Of God's glorious standard yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight he did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins for God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin people are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life shedding his blood This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Can we boast then that we've done anything To be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. After all, is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Of course he is. There's only one God and he makes people right with himself only by faith, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Well then, if we emphasize faith, does this mean that we can forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, we only, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. See so here's, here's what Paul is telling the church in Rome. There is actually a way to be made right with God. This is good news for us. This is the best news. Like we can actually be reconciled. We can actually be made right in God's eyes. There's a way to do that. And it's not going to be found in creation. And it's not going to be found in the law. Well, what's that way? Well, it's Jesus. Jesus is the way to be made right in the sight of God. This is the point of Romans chapter 3. There's a way to be made right. And we're not justified and righteous through creation. We're not justified and righteous through the law. And yes, I'm on repeat because you, we need to hear this. Some of us think if we, can just, if we can just keep the law, if we can just be a better person, then God is going to look down on us. He's going to be satisfied with us. Some of us think that as long as we're not like everyone else, as long as we don't sin like everyone else, that God is going to see us and he's going to consider us righteous. But that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that the path to being made right with God is only through Jesus Christ. See, these things, creation and the law, they only wet our appetite for the real thing. I was reading a book on discipleship several years. This was a long time ago. This was probably 10 or or 12 years ago. We've all heard the phrase, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Well, the author begins this book by saying that, and he says, well, actually that phrase is wrong. You can make a horse um, drink. All you have to do is put salt in its oats. And what you'll do is you're going, to, you're going to wet its appetite. It's going to want to drink. And as, as I think about creation, the purpose of creation, and the purpose of the law, what it's doing is it's wetting our appetite for Jesus. See, creation makes us see that there's something else out there. It, it, it cues us up. To wonder who that thing is. What is that ultimate being like? Can I know this being? What can I know about it? That's what Romans 1 says. What can be made known about God? His invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. Is revealed in creation. So it's reasonable for us. To look at creation and ask ourselves, what does this reveal about God? What does this tell me about God? See, creation whets my appetite for Jesus. And then the law does the exact same thing for the Jews. The Jews are given these laws. Exodus chapter 20, they're given 10 commandments. What, what, what do these laws tell us about God? What do these laws tell us about me? Well, they tell me about me that I need to be restrained. Because on my own, what I'm going to do is I'm going to sin. See, there's this standard. Do you see how sin simply reveals the sin that's within us? When we're driving down the road and we see the speed limit sign of 65, and we're going 67 or 70, we tap the brake? Well, we should. Right? See, the law has simply revealed to us what sin is. Or better yet, when we're driving down the road and we don't know the speed limit and then we see the sign, do you see how that reveals to us what our sin is? This is the purpose of the law. It's to draw our attention and our hunger and our thirst towards Jesus. It's to prep us for this person in whom we find our righteousness. This uh, past week, after the 10-15, um, Ann and I went down to North Platte. Our daughter and her, fa- her husband and their three kids um, were all driving through um, North Platte last week. And then our son John uh, was going to be there as well. And we were really excited about going to, going to see them. We were really pumped up. Um, those of you who are grandparents, you know what that's like when your kids live in another state and you have the opportunity to go and see them. Um, We were really pumped up and excited about that. So we're closer than where they were coming from. So we got there a couple hours early and we were kind of checking in with Katie on the way. When are you gonna be here? When are you gonna be here? When are you gonna be here? Well, at about the 10 minute mark, she said, we're 10 minutes away. Um, So we we went down to the lobby and we're just waiting. And sure enough, about 10 minutes later, um, I heard the, the little, voice, little voices, right, of three little boys. And we know those voices because we get to talk to them on FaceTime. So we know their voices. We know their tone. We know how they talk. We know how they um, speak. So we walked outside into the parking lot. And our youngest, um, Damian, he's two years old. He's drinking this, drinking this big bottle of Gatorade. And he kind of looks across the parking lot as we're walking across the parking lot to him. And you could, like, you could see his little brain turning, right? He's trying to figure out how he knows the two people that are walking towards him, right? Because it's completely out of context. They just spent six hours in, in their minivan. And most of the time when we talk to them, it's over FaceTime. So he gets out of the van. He's drinking his drink. We're walking across the parking lot. And, and he's trying to figure out how he knows us. It was really funny to watch his brain do this. Well, all of a sudden, like, it clicked. You could see it click. And he put his, he took his Gatorade bottle out of his mouth. And he said, what? What? <laughs> Like, it was so cool. It was so cool. This is exactly what nature and the law are designed to do for us. They are designed to get our brains turning and ready to receive Jesus. They're designed to get our brains longing for righteousness that creation can't provide, that the law can't provide, but only Jesus can provide. See, the law reveals that the God who created all things has standards and expectations. He has rules and regulations. These are guidelines and guardrails. And I love that the Romans 3 tells us that this is is a glorious standard. See, many of us don't think about God's rules and regulations and guidelines as glorious. What we've sort of decided in our own minds is that God is this giant buzzkill who doesn't want us to have any kind of fun. But God's rules, God's standards are meant to protect us. They're meant to keep us in line. They're meant to help us love Him and love others well. And we know that we can't keep this standard. We fall short, and then nature reveals God's invisible qualities, His his eternal nature, divine eternal power and divine nature, leaving us to wonder about who God is. See, these things wet our appetites the universality of our sin and the weight that bears down on our souls fills us with questions about the meaning and purpose of life. Why do I, when given the choice, why do I more often than not choose sin? Why do I want, and even if I don't choose it, I'll give, I'll give us a little credit. But why do we want to choose it? Why is that temptation there? Why do I have to face this battle? When I think about my walk with with Christ becoming a Christian in 1995, 27 years ago, did anybody think at 27 years it was going to be easier? Just me. I'm the only person. I thought this was going to get easier. But it's not because there there are still things going on inside of me that are warring inside of me. And again, this is in a few weeks that we're going to read about. We know there's more to it, but we can't figure it out. And we have these hints we have creation, we have the law. And as people who are just under the creation and the law, we're a lot like Damien in the parking lot. We're confused. And we're excited, but we're also kind of curious. Like, why are those two people walking towards me? The people that I normally see on a three-inch screen, why, why are they walking towards me? I want to know more about this. See, it's only when we get closer and when Jesus comes to us that the reality of who he is and what he's done for us despite our rejection and despite our rebellion, begins to fall into place. See, in the person of Jesus, when we know him, when we understand him, it all clicks in that moment. Jesus is the fix. Not creation, not the law, but it's Jesus Romans 3, 23 and 24 tell us this, For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. See it, at first glance, when we read these two verses, this sounds an awful lot like, the student loan forgiveness program that was just announced. At least that's what people on Facebook and all of the social media theologians would have us believe. And I want to tell you that these two things, the student loan forgiveness program and Jesus' mercy on us, have nothing in common. See, student debt is simply thrown into a hole of $30 trillion. I don't know if you knew that. It's never going to be repaid. It's never going to be dealt with. We're not even passing it along to our children's children and their children. That debt is never going to be paid. Your sin debt was not simply erased. My sin debt was not simply erased. See, there's a verse 25 in Romans chapter 3, and it says this, For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. See, the only reason... That you and I are freed from the penalty of what is owed us for our sin is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only reason we're free. The only reason. There was a cost. There was a penalty. We have to ask that question. What was the cost? What was the payment? And I wonder if you have your communion element with you. In Luke chapter 22, we read that Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. See that the payment made for our sin debt was the body and blood of Jesus Christ. We can't repay that debt. But there is a payment. And someone took care of that payment for us and his name is Jesus. He didn't just write the debt off and pretend it doesn't exist. He paid it. With his body. With his blood. With his life. And as Christians when we gather together here at Westway Christian Church that's what we we remember. That's what we celebrate every single week. That it's not See, we're so tempted to think that our salvation is free. That it didn't cost anyone anything. This breeds so much entitlement within the church. That we think God owes us something. God does owe us something. He owes us death. And instead, Jesus paid that price for us. So, this represents Christ's body, which is broken for you. And this is Christ's blood, which has been poured out for you. Let's pray. God, I pray this morning that we would see the reality of our, of our situation with you. That we would have an awareness of our sinfulness. That we would know that our response to what, to what you have done, what, the way you have revealed yourself is rejection and rebellion. And yet, you offered Jesus. Your response to our rejection and rebellion is the person of Jesus, is the sacrifice of Jesus. Help us to never take that for granted. Help us to recognize that it came at a cost wasn't free. And while we get to enjoy the benefits, it cost somebody everything. It cost your son Jesus. Help us to see that the only way we can be made right with you is through him. And the other ways that we pursue this righteousness, help us to see that they fail. and help us to see our need for you. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.